powerful stories from the biggest names in the game. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Now, here's Jeremy Schaap. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. This week, there was enormous news in the world of sports. Monday, the Washington Redskins announcing that they would finally change their name. Why did it take so long? Of course, the team's name was what it was long before Dan Snyder became the owner, but he defended that name for decades. Now, under pressure from sponsors, among others, he has decided that the name will be changed. We don't have a new name yet, but to discuss the latest news and this historic development, we welcome someone who's been fighting for the name change for years, the leader of the Oneida Nation, Ray Halbritter. Ray, thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. We talked the other day uh, on Outside the Lines on Sports Center. I appreciate your joining us again to talk about this story. And as I did on Outside the Lines, uh, I will again uh, begin, begin our interview by quoting an article about you that was in The Atlantic five years ago. Native American activists have been saying since the late 60s that the Redskins name is a slur. But their complaints drew little sustained notice until 2013 when you, Ray Halbritter, almost single-handedly vaulted the issue into the headlines when you launched Change the Mascot, a campaign of radio ads, polls, opposition, research, academic studies, YouTube videos, Twitter hashtags, and media interviews. Um, You started that campaign in 2013. You saw it come to fruition this week. Uh, what has it been like to see the impact uh, and to see this change in the last few days? Well, as you mentioned, it's been a few years, and it's sort of really an interesting beginning for us when these young kids in Cooperstown, which does where the Baseball Hall of Fame is located, wanted to change the name of their high school, which had the same name, the R word. And and so uh, I went out there to meet with them and, and watch them, and they lobbied their school, and they got approval to change the name, and uh, they didn't have the money for the uniform, so we donated the money for that. But it was so inspiring to see these young kids because as a culture, our culture, our children are our future. And these, looking at these, these kids, they, that's the future of our country, these kids coming up. And it inspired us and gave us hope because sometimes – you, know, you, you don't get very far with some of the people who are. And these kids are making a better decision, a more informed decision, a more enlightened decision, an inclusive decision. It just gave us such hope and inspiration. That's what got us started in the Change the Mascot campaign back in 2013. And, you know, we stand today on the shoulders of countless other Native leaders like Suzanne Schoenharjo, Amanda Blackhorse, and National Congress of American Indians who have been fighting from the 60s to try to change this name so we're we're finally got to the place where the nfl and and dan snyder will be standing on the right side of history by changing the team's name we're speaking with ray halbritter he is the leader of the oneida nation he is the ceo of its enterprises as well mr halbritter you know i mentioned uh the sponsors who who ultimately told Dan Snyder, the owner of the Redskins, that they felt the name had to change. Why did this finally happen now after him saying in so many words, many times over the years, uh, I think Mike Wilbon had put it this way in his um, essay the other day, he would tell anyone with a microphone or a notebook over his dead body. Why did it finally happen now? 
Well, you know, I learned a long time ago not to say ever say never. Uh, but, you know, we're in a country, and one of the beautiful things about our country makes it an exceptional country is that it is a, we do have a history of evolution and change. We're not frozen in time. We're always learning from the past. And uh, I think, unfortunately, in, in this day, you know, today, there, you know, there was a dark day uh, that uh, back when George Floyd uh, was murdered, and it created such a racial awareness and movement in this country that I think we, we sort of fall, fell into the wake of that pressure. And while we had been lobbying for years, now the large sponsors, FedEx, Nike, Pepsi, um, you know, Target and Walmart, Amazon, they really, really understood how significant it is to be using a racial slur that dehumanizes and denigrates an ethnic group. American Indians are the only group in America that have these sports teams named after them. And and very often these organizations don't have any discussions or communication with the, with the impacted group, meaning the Native Americans in this particular case. And, you know, that's so important. And, but, you know, the, the pressure, for that economic pressure uh, certainly had to make a difference and, and push this domino over. But sometimes that's what it takes. Sometimes it takes protests. Sometimes it takes pressure to make things change. George Preston Marshall refused to integrate his team and had to get pressure from the government, put pressure on him to integrate, finally integrate, was the last team. Washington was the last team to integrate. And so sometimes pressure is what's needed. And, yeah, that and pressure, they, they applied. They said you couldn't play in our stadium uh, built with uh, taxpayer dollars from D.C. unless unless you integrate. Well, that's what's great about this country is that, yes, we have some poor history in some cases, but we we end up on the right side of history. In this case, we've done so, and that's what needs to happen. And sometimes pressure and pro- that's what protests are. Protests are a way of of uh, provoking and making people feel uncomfortable, making people feel that pressure. And sometimes that's what's necessary for change to take place. Again, we're speaking with Ray Halbritter. He is the leader of the Oneida Nation. And um, for the Change the Mascot campaign, um, what is your work now? What is your mission now that this has been achieved? Well, it really continues in the sense that uh, there still are instances in the country where inappropriate names are used, uh, masketry, um, you know, taking people, appropriating our culture for profit um, is still occurring. And too many years, our people have been treated as relics or mascots. Our voices were left out of the debate. We were told what we should and should not consider as respectful. And those har- and you know, we know these harmful effects from social science has, has told us and demonstrated that this, this kind of masketry does have an effect on the image of Native American youth. And our youth is our future. And we have one of the highest teen suicide rates in the world. So this is very important. The work continues. And we need to keep uh, bringing to attention uh, people that because they don't always know. We know that a lot of fans don't realize, you know, the effect of what's happening. And this is why we're we're doing this campaign. Part of our whole campaign wasn't just to change the name. It was to bring an awareness to how these racial mascots, how these can affect our youth and how they need to be changed. The Redskins name is going away. Finally, after all these years, the R word. Um, there's been some talk about replacing it 
uh, and we don't know where this really stands. We haven't really heard from Dan Snyder himself uh, about exactly what the new name would be. Um, but but there has been some talk about replacing it with Warriors, um, which which might be problematic as well. How would you feel about that name? You know, it'd be helpful if they had a discussion with the people who are impacted, and not necessarily just me, but the National Congress of American Indians and others lead this country. The, in Florida, the Florida Seminoles who use that name now, Florida State Seminoles, talk to the Seminole people. So I think that uh, there's been a real lack of discussion and communication and that broader, and, and not just for this name and this team, but the broader discussion in the country on using such names and imagery because uh, mascots do have harmful effects. Ray Halbritter, the leader of the Oneida Nation, someone who has campaigned for years for the name change of the Washington NFL team. Ray, thank you so much for joining us again this week to discuss this historic development. Thank you for the opportunity to be on your show. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. In the last several weeks on the show, we've talked a lot about the return or the unreturn of certain sports, whether it's baseball, football, basketball. Now it's time for an update on the world of soccer amid the pandemic and in the wake of the killing of George Floyd in police custody. Our next guest is a longtime colleague of mine at ESPN. Before that, the longtime national team goalkeeper for Trinidad and Tobago. He played in the Premier League for West Ham and Newcastle, and he has been combating racism in sports for a long time. He is the great Shaka Hislop. Shaka, thank you for being with us. Jeremy, pleasure to be here. Shaka, um, how would you say the world of soccer, your game, has responded in the last month and a half um, to what we've been seeing, to what we saw in Minneapolis, and, and of course, um, the protests that sparked, not just here in the U.S., but around the world? I think there are a number of, of, of issues um, that the world of soccer needs to be applauded for. I still think there's, there's a lot of work to be done yet. But just to put that into context, Jeremy, I've always felt that soccer is, as a sport, is, is uniquely positioned to deal with, with many of these societal issues that we've been discussing over recent weeks. I'll just use my own experiences as an example. Where else in, in the world can, can you find somebody from England, uh, somebody from Trinidad, somebody from, from Colombia or Belgium or, or the Far East, all sharing the same 20 by 20, 30 by 30 dressing room in an effort to make each other better. And when we're not having a good day, we can rely on, on those who are sitting next to us. And, and we're, when we're having a great day, similarly, it's our role and responsibility to, uh, to uplift everybody else. I, I think there are life lessons that come with sport that translate to a much bigger picture. We've seen, um, just in, in, in the world of soccer, from the likes of, of Weston McKinney as, as being the first player to take action following the, the George Floyd murder and, and the protest. His came in the form of, of an armband simply saying justice for, jo- for George Floyd in playing for, for FC Schalke in, in their game um, against Bruder Bremen. Five days after, 
after the incident involving involving George Floyd, and you saw Jaden Sancho, uh, Hakim Zayek, and the world of football follow suit. In the Premier League, players have, are taking a knee and, and their Black Lives Matter badges on their shirts. And while all those things are simply fantastic and raise awareness and speaks to, to the sport's responsibility to, to the bigger picture, I still feel that there are other things that the sport can do um, and uh, are longer-term issues that they can that they need to be at the forefront in, in addressing. What do you mean by that, Shaka? I mean, so for instance, certainly in English football, they've been resistant to the Rooney Rule, where clubs, when, when um, identifying their, their next manager or hiring for, for positions, aren't mandated to at least interview uh, a, a, a black candidate or a, a minority candidate. And the numbers are, are, are stunning, Shock. I, I saw the numbers recently. I think in the top four divisions of English soccer, I, 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 and I, I don't want to get it wrong, but I think the number was four managers. Three is the number I, I heard last. In, in all 92 professional clubs. Three. Even worse. Yes. Three, three, man, three black managers. And just using my own experience and... Just, just let me just be clear. I've I've never thought of myself as 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 a, as a head coach, as a manager. Um, I, I've, that's not a, an avenue that that I pursued. But just given um, the racial makeup of players in the league, you are surprised that there aren't more going into going into management. But in speaking with players, black players who who I played with and played alongside who wanted to become coaches and managers, many were discouraged. And, and just for the mere fact that they couldn't get an interview. I, I, I can't tell you the number of players that I spoke with in our, in our retirement years, let's call it, who simply said they didn't bother to pursue badges or didn't bother to, to go all the way to, to uh, a pro badge um, qualification because they, they knew that or felt that they, they couldn't get an interview. And how easy is it in employing the Rooney Rule as, as is used here in the U.S. in the NFL? Why, why is it such a challenge for, for, for the Premier League to endorse it? Recently, the, the chief executive of the English Premier League, Richard Hood, came out and said that the Rooney Rule is not on the table. It's not something that they, they anticipate discussing um, anytime in, in the near future. This while the Premier League continues to, to, to champion the kneeling before games and the Black Lives Matter uh, badges on the shirts, which I think are absolutely fantastic in raising the awareness of the issues, but which is why I say the game, and in particular, or certainly in this instance, the Premier League can do so much more in addressing the long-term issues. Shaka, here we saw... Um the Bundesliga come back first. We see the Premier League back. We see European soccer essentially back. MLS playing um, this modified tournament. What lessons are to be drawn? And, and of course, our country's now at a very different stage of the pandemic than many places in Europe. But what are the lessons to be drawn for the professional sports leagues here in North America from what is 
happening in Europe over the course of the last several weeks as these leagues have been back have been back playing in empty stadiums. Yeah, I, I, I understand the role that sport continues to play, not just here in the U.S., not just, just in Europe, but, but across the wider world. And given what we've all had to endure um, in the early stages of, of the pandemic and, and how long it's rumbled on, I, I understand the need to have live sport back. I, I also think that, that sport needs to, needs to show a responsibility to, um, to the players and, and to the fans alike. Germany was the first to be back. Uh, I think Germany as a country um, dealt with the pandemic as, as well as anybody could. And then in, in, in the Bundesliga um, coming back before everybody else, they again led the way in how, in how live sport can be played. And as much as, as much as you have 25 guys on a pitch, some of, some of, um, some of, of how they, they managed the, the spacing, for instance, players on the bench had to sit a certain distance apart. And even though players on the field were there tussling and within close proximity of each other, when goals were scored, you weren't allowed to celebrate with a teammate or the celebrations were, were modified accordingly. And, and those restrictions have lessened as, as time has gone on and the pandemic has become less of a concern in those respective countries. It, it also showed the, the power of example that even though these players can be tackling each other, can be in close proximity of each other, um, there still is an example to be shown in, in how you interact when you don't have to be on, on top of each other. And as a result, we've not seen those leagues have to, have to go back on, on, on any of, of their own um, self in, in, in instructed restrictions and they've been able to, to be more relaxed with them and the game has taken on uh, a more natural field. As natural as it can be because fans are still not allowed into the games, but they've been uh, proactive in, in, in how they allow fans to, to view, be it online and uh, maybe a, a relaxing of, 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 of broadcast rights, etc. And, and allowing fans to continue to, to be a part of of, of supporting their, their teams. Shaka, it's been too long. Thank you so much for joining us here on The Sporting Life. Jeremy, it's, it's always a pleasure. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Earlier in the show, we were speaking with Ray Halbritter, the leader of the Oneida Nation, about the historic news this week that the Washington Redskins would be changing their name after years of campaigning from Hal Britter's Change the Mascot campaign and others about the inappropriateness of using a dictionary-defined slur as the name of an NFL team. For more on this subject, we welcome our old friend and colleague, the longtime national sports columnist and the co-producer of a film in the making about 
the name situation. The film's name is Imagining the Indian. We had the co-director on a few weeks ago, Aviva Kempner, but now we're joined by one of the producers as well, Kevin Blackstone. Kevin, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Kevin, this is um, this is a story and is a guy who... Um, who's worked in Washington, in the area for a long time, who knows it as well as anyone. What was it like to see this news, uh, which was broken, I believe, Sunday night, I think, by the Sports Business Journal, right. and then there was the announcement itself on Monday morning? You know what? Really, the most amazing thing wasn't that weekend, but the most amazing thing to me has been that in the weeks since George Floyd's murder, the, the wrecking ball against racial injustice has knocked down monuments um, to the Confederacy all the way back to Christopher Columbus. And in the middle of this, has swung into the nickname of this team and forced corporations to force Dan Snyder to drop it. Um, so it was a little bit I won't say anticlimactic when, when we when I saw the news and saw the press the uh, press release just the other day, but the most amazing thing was that this is this has come to fruition in just a few short weeks as the nation is is grappling with with um, uh, with reckoning over over racial injustice. Speaking with Kevin Blackstone and Kevin, I, I think I. I um, described Dan Snyder's position earlier in the show when we were speaking to Ray Halbritter as essentially over my dead body. That's what he said for many years. He's owned the team for 22 years now. Um, did you think we'd ever see this day? Um, I didn't think we'd ever see it with, with him at the helm um, because, as you said, I mean, he was so defiant. I mean, when I first heard him say those words, um, seven years ago that, that you described when he said you can, he, when he said he would never change the team's name and you can put it in all caps, he reminded me of George Wallace standing in the schoolhouse door. And, and so it, to me, at that particular moment in history, he kind of etched his, his, his name and in, in, um, his legacy in stone. Uh, and, you know, what it has come down to uh, is he's not being altruistic about this, obviously, uh, but he's being forced at the point of bayonet just as George Preston Marshall was to integrate the team uh, to get rid of this uh, opprobrious uh, uh, name. How would you describe, in Washington in particular, but beyond as well, Kevin, the evolution of thinking from people outside the American Indian community about this nickname? Well, it's been a gradual education. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat representative of that. I was born and, and reared here in Washington, D.C. in a family that had uh, season tickets to the games. I, I, I proudly used to say I, I bled uh, burgundy and gold. Um, I was at all their big wins. I went to the last Super Bowl um, as a fan in 92. A sports writer going as a fan to the Super Bowl? That, that's shocking. I got to tell you, I had just started working in sports at the Dallas Morning News. And uh, when I saw this possibility about to happen, I went to Dave Smith, who, who I'm sure you knew. The great Dave Smith. The great Dave Smith, absolutely. And I pleaded with him. I said, look, I'm just getting into sports. I, I just want to go to the Super Bowl, not as a, as a writer, but as a fan. Would that be all right? And, uh, and I promised him a column on something else. And he, and he bought it. And he bought it, and I went. And you know who I went with? 
uh, one of my best friends, Kevin Merida. Oh, you're kidding. Who is now editor-in-chief of, of the Undefeated. That's right. So he and I went. We, we went with our wives. We had a great weekend. But as we were walking into the, into the uh, Metrodome, there was a commotion um, uh, on, a, on a corner off to the side. And I went over to check it out, and it was a protest against the nickname. And I had never, uh, I had never really uh, considered that. And that was the that was the, the the moment where I where it was it was put in the back of my mind. And then as the '90s wore on, and I started to read more, and I started to encounter more things, and I started to think about it a lot more in context with the kind of things that I write about in sports. I came to understand the difficulty of the uh, of the nickname and started to. To, to write about it and started to try not to use it in my copy and not to use it in my speech. We're speaking with the great Kevin Blackstone, our longtime colleague. You see him on ESPN on so many different shows and so many different platforms. And uh, you undertook this project, uh, the film, Imagining the Indian. Um, what, what, what led you to that project or, or what led you to conceive of that project, I should say? Well, um, it, it it started to become the nickname has started to become an obsession of mine. And when I moved back to DC in the late um, 2000s, um, I actually met Suzanne Harjo for the first time, although I had interviewed her over the phone and, and uh, I was around some other people who were really concerned about it. And then in 2013, 2014, the uh, uh, patent and trademark office came out once again. And this time they canceled the trademark uh, for the team. And I thought at that point, I said, you know what? it's it could happen right now and i and i and i thought to myself this was something that needs to be documented like why this is happening how it's happening and why it's important and i also wanted to tell the story of um suzanne harjo who is a civil rights icon a legend in this in this country i mean she has a a presidential medal of freedom from from president obama for all that she's done for native folk um and so at any rate a friend of mine uh, Sam Bardley, who you may know the name because he's one of the he was one of the producer directors for the Lynn Bias doc without bias, the 30 for 30 piece. Um, he and I kicked around the idea. And we we started up a small company to try and do this. And the original name of um, our film project was um, uh, the, the original name was Dishonorable Mention. And we wanted to talk about the whole history of using Native American mascots and nicknames um, in sports and how uh, deleterious that was to Native people and how we need to get rid of it. Well, anyway, we weren't able to really get the funding that we needed and, and everything. And I happened to mention it one day to Aviva Kempner, and she was immediately drawn to the idea. And she said that as soon as she finished her last project, which was Mo Bird, um, about the, the, the catcher spy, uh, which is a great story from the first half of the last century. She said she wanted to delve into this because she uh, knew Suzanne Harjo. She'd worked in uh, Native American affairs before. And interesting enough, all of her films up until now have been about Jewish heroes and heroines. But she saw this one as being one about an anti-Jewish hero in Dan Snyder, who she saw him as not doing the right thing in this city when it came to sports, where she saw a Poland, an old friend of yours, do the right thing in naming the, uh, renaming the basketball team, the Wizards, as opposed to the Bullets. So um, uh, we 
we, we've married with her. And of course, she has the infrastructure and the gravitas from 40 years of doing documentary film work. And, uh, uh, and we, um, uh, we added um, Ben West, which is great um, to, the, to the project. Ben West is a filmmaker from right here in Washington, D.C., who now lives on the West Coast. He's native. He is the son of, um, of Richard West, who was one of the founders of the American Indian Museum here and now runs the Autry Museum of the West um, out, out, in, uh, out on the West Coast. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's kind of the, the genesis um, uh, of this whole project. And now in the ju- last few weeks, we, we've kind of had to really step on the, uh, the gas because now it's not just a film about why this is important and why these uh, images need to be uh, erased, but how it is all of a sudden that they have become erased. Um, and so now we're, 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 we're on a treadmill on high, <laughs> just trying to catch up with all the news. Kevin Blackstone, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your insights as always, sir. Oh, thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate it. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. At this point, we just don't know if college football is going to be played this fall or if it's going to be played in the spring, if there will be fans in the stands or if there won't be. Some conferences have already said there will be no fall sports, such as the Patriot League and the Ivy League. On the West Coast, there is a team in San Diego that if the season takes place will be looking for its seventh consecutive conference title. And we are joined now by its head coach, the head coach at uh, the University of San Diego, Dale Lindsay. Dale, thank you for being with us. My pleasure, anytime. Dale, what are your thoughts now? We're speaking on uh, Wednesday afternoon. Your conference is the Pioneer Football League. Uh, There's been a lot of developments in the last few days. You've built an extremely successful program over the course of the last decade. Is there going to be football this fall, you think, for your Toreros? You know, I don't really know at this time. It, it seems to me each and every day we get a little bit further away from having a season. As you mentioned earlier, uh, two leagues, Ivies and one of the other schools, deciding that they were not going to have football in the fall. And I i know we were mentioned in the article the Pioneer Football League was. I'm, I'm looking for when... Uh, somebody from the SEC or the ACC Big Ten says they're not going to do it, then I think everybody will fall in line. I really don't know if it's a good idea, a bad idea. I've been involved in spring football, having coached in the USFL for three years. Uh, That's right. You were the uh, defensive coordinator of the Generals. What was it, 80, 83, 84, when they were playing, the New Jersey Generals? Yeah. I started with the Boston Breakers in 83, I believe it was. And so there were three years of that. And uh, it was good football. It was a little different in that you start when it's cold and finish when it's hot. But it was um, it was okay. And it, it, there are a number of people who would watch football year-round. I'd be one of them. And so I don't think it's probably a bad idea. It's just, it's just going to be, if it does happen, the calendar will have to be looked at and dates will have to be changed as far as like, okay, what do you do 
when do you have uh, your fall camp, your spring camp to get ready to play the season? And how much time off are you going to give these kids between the seasons? And are you really going to give them time off the rest of the body? That's a big thing. Having seen uh, uh, one year with the, the generals, we had two players, uh, Willie Harper and Bobby Leopold, had just played in the Super Bowl with the 49ers, and they came to training camp with about two weeks rest. And you could really see at the end of the year, they were really dragging. And these are phenomenal athletes and great players. And so you would have to find a way to get these kids rested so they could go uh, a fall season if you play in the spring. We're speaking with Dale Lindsay. He is the head coach at the University of San Diego. Uh, which has been the best team in the Pioneer Football League for the last seven years. He is also the oldest head coach in Division I football at 77. And I was reading a story that was in the San Diego Union-Tribune, Dale, uh, in the last couple of weeks. It says that you're planning to coach this season. Of course, if there is a season wearing a scarf, a face shield, and gloves, you told uh, the paper, if they say yes, that is, if the season is played, I'm planning on going. I'm not planning on doing something stupid to get myself sick or die. I also would not have plans to let anybody else fall into those categories. We're going to do whatever we can to keep kids and coaches healthy. I love football, but I don't think it's worth dying for. Strong and certainly very reasonable sentiments. Um, how do you feel about uh, uh, doing this job? as someone who is in a high-risk group as a 77-year-old? First of all, Jeremy, I don't consider football a job. <laughs> I look at it as, here's a guy, I got out of school in 1965, and for the last 55 years I've had a hobby that's been very enjoyable and paid me quite well. And it's something that I relish and look forward to every day. Believe me, this last two months or whatever is Groundhog Day, and I really don't care for it. I like going down there every day and meeting with the, the staff and trying to find uh, ways to correct dilemmas and problems and situations. And I don't know if we'll play in the, the fall or the spring, but I like to be part of it. It's just been, it's been, uh, football's been great to me. It uh, got me out of trouble as a young guy, got me a college education and Coaching and playing has paid me quite handsomely, and I I see nothing negative about it. It's taught me to, uh, when things look darkest, to keep fighting, and get up off the ground, and keep going. I think that you'll, if you ask a hundred players who've played, they will tell you the same thing that uh, you're going to get knocked down, get back up. And I think that's where we are right now with our season. It, it's uh, it's like you might get knocked down, but football, one way or the other, is going to happen. I, uh, my wife has happened to be from Budapest, Hungary, and my mother-in-law years ago said that we were talking about culture, and uh, my in-laws were artists, and they relished the operas and things like that, and my mother-in-law said to me, the culture of the United States is sports. And I thought she was being a little nasty at the time and really when I look back on it she was quite right that football, basketball, baseball, track, soccer, whatever it is, that is our culture and it's something we excel at and but people enjoy it. So I'm hoping that 
at some point, either in the fall or the spring, that we can continue playing football and entertain the millions of people who really follow us. We're speaking with Dale Lindsay again. He is the head football coach of the University of San Diego Toreros, who've won, I believe it is, is six consecutive Pioneer Football League titles with him as the head coach. He is the oldest coach in Division One at 77. The next oldest coach in the championship series, what we used to call one double A, uh, is at South Carolina State. Uh, I think he, he, Oliver Poe, I think uh, is how it's pronounced, P-O-U-G-H. He's 67. Frank Solich at Ohio University is 75. That's in the Bowl Series. Not only one of, not only the oldest coach in Division One, but one of the most successful, his winning percentage, Dale Lindsay's winning percentage, 78%, 64-18, which trails only Dabo, Sweeney, Nick Saban, Chris Peterson, and Sam Washington. Um Dale, you know, obviously, um, sadly, we've seen a resurgence of the virus um, in California, uh, a huge public health crisis right now. Um, for you as a football coach in the state right now, presumably many of your players are in state um, from California or there now. What, what is it like um, managing the team at this moment in time? Well, we really haven't uh, had uh, much direct contact with our players on campus because the school closed two months ago and our kids went home. We have uh, Our staff has done a great job of doing uh, Zoom with these guys and continuing to try to educate them in football as long as the school has also done uh, Zoom for the education classes. So uh, it, it's just been... Uh, really weird. I, I mean, to me, every day is like Groundhog Day. It's that's Bill Murray. It's like, damn. I mean, this this gets. If this is retirement, I certainly don't want to do it. And I know at seventy-seven, I don't have have a lot of time to decide that. But uh, it's like I said earlier. I, I don't have a job. I have a hobby, and I would like to see if we can. Uh, somebody in this country. I know there's a smart guy or girl somewhere. They can figure this virus out, and I'm looking forward to the day that we can save a whole lot of lives and we can get back on track as a country. Dale, thank you so much for your words of wisdom and for joining us. We wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.